You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Hey there, everyone. I wanted you to meet a good friend of mine, uh, and I think a very inspirational person, John, John Zwiak at, at Humana. I did interview him with the book, and I wanted to revisit that discussion and kind of see how things had gone a year into their cloud transformation. Um, and I think you'll find this discussion very interesting. John's pragmatic, but also he understands kind of um, how to set a good uh, course. I think for an organization as large and as successful as Humana has been, you're going to enjoy um, John's approach. There's a lot of lessons there to be learned uh, with making a cloud migration as painless as possible, but still make progress towards um, some some really valuable goals. So enjoy this discussion. I, I'm working with a company right now that uh, that's like all out about moving to the cloud, mm-hmm. like a 100. But you started with with purely like an enterprise cloud platform. I don't think you were trying to come up with the Ten Commandments of the cloud. I think you were starting no. with one workflow. Nope. Is that correct? That that is pretty that is correct and and we actually um, right wrong or indifferent we kind of uh, uh, swung for the the big one we we went with the highest risk property uh, which, which was our uh, Humana dot com oh okay our our, uh, our largest money making um, footprint um, get moving that into the cloud ecosystem to save significant amounts of on prem scaling concerns. Um, most most insurance companies like ourselves have a open enrollment period through the year, and in order to accommodate that, we have to, or in the past, would have to scale or uh, uh, provision to peak, and sometimes that would be three, four times whatever peak is, not knowing you know when there's going to be volume and surge in volume, and moving those assets to a cloud platform, uh, in particular Azure, uh, really took away a lot of the um, unknowns if that makes any sense and mm-hmm. let us um, really focus on business deliverables instead of focusing on plumbing um, so my our team the platform team was primarily an enabler uh, and our job was to kind of get out of the way of the teams that were delivering business value um, that's not to say that we weren't engaged we certainly provide engineering and architectural support for what platform capabilities to adopt and and all that kind of guidance and reference architectures and things like that. But I don't want to be in the middle of a team being successful. I want to get out of the way and let them be successful and then engage us as partners when they feel they need it, uh, rather than being kind of the team that everybody points to or all the arrows pointing to one team to do the thing. That centralized work just doesn't scale. So uh, that's been our mission, and so far that's been pretty successful. I find this fascinating because I was having discussion with someone last week who was in that organization that was trying to, you know, this grand, everyone in the cloud at once, everyone in a pool kind of a thing. And he says, how much further? He says, a year ago, we were stuck in neutral. Today, we're stuck in neutral. I don't see this changing a year from now. He's like, how much better it would have been if a year ago we built a time machine, right? (laughs) And we just sit down with one team and say, what does it hurt? Okay, how can I help? Yep. Exactly. And I feel like you're, you're kind of your team is doing that at you're saying, listen, we don't want to be a new bottleneck. The DevOps team can become a bottleneck, right? They absolutely can. And and actually, the uh, when we last chatted, the the enterprise DevOps team that was 
existed then no longer exists. Um, that that team has disbanded. There was a unified platform team of the past that existed to kind of build the enterprise capabilities and make that ready for the enterprise to start adopting. And that team does not exist in the same capacity that they existed in the past. And part of that is because DevOps is not DevOps isn't a, a role. It isn't a title. It isn't a um, it, it's a it's a set of practices that you do. And the interesting dimension is we've watched going from a team that was responsible for doing DevOpsy things to now the rest of the organization doing the DevOpsy things as practices. And the team's focus has shifted away from uh, doing the things on behalf of others to helping others do the things for themselves. And what that's allowed is uh, different members of the team to kind of go off into pockets of the organization and tackle the next problem. And in my case, that was moving to a, a newly cloud, a newly formed cloud platform team to focus the next frontier, which is we've nailed this continuous integration, continuous delivery. We've somewhat started to deal with people's source control practices. And, and now it's time to tackle the next frontier, which is how do we deliver those same types of continuous value capabilities flowing into the cloud platform, flowing into these ecosystems that allow for economy of scale and uh, you know all the other characteristics that are good of the cloud. Uh, that's become our mission and the next frontier for tackling the things that are DevOpsy. I find this really fascinating because um, we need to come back to this. Um, we're going to circle back to this because I, I do think this is really interesting that like if you were to go back and say uh, the enterprise DevOps team that was, well, that was a big mistake. I'm not sure if that's a true statement. It is not. I bet you anything that was a, that's like a, like almost like a caterpillar. It's a necessary in between state. It let's, absolutely was. Yeah. Let's come back to that. Yeah. Let me, um, a lot of people on the podcast, they may not know about you and, and Humana. So, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Like where, sure. where do you come from, John? Sure. So uh, first and foremost, my name is John Swake. I'm an enterprise cloud platform architect, and I, I work for a company called Humana. Uh, Humana is a, um, well, we're an insurance company, but we're also a health and wellness company. Um, and we deliver the promise of helping people live healthier lives. Um, and as part of that, uh, delivering those solutions require lots of technology. Uh, and lots of technology means lots of opportunities to do things faster, cheaper, and smarter. Um, I started uh, in my current role uh, just about eight years ago, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, and I really focus on kind of the Microsoft ecosphere, um, which includes Azure and Azure DevOps and Office 365 and probably a myriad of other less cloudy things from yesteryear that are necessary to support um, a growing uh, enterprise. And um, uh, so my role in the organization on the enterprise cloud platform team is primarily in the architecture and engineering space. And uh, I deliver on uh, infrastructure as code. I deliver on policy as code uh, and all of the things that are necessary for telling an engineering team or helping an engineering team adopt uh, their solutions on a cloud platform. What does that mean? How do I do these things? It's, you know, skill sets and, and practices. And uh, here's the outline of, of what one needs to do in order to deliver their software effectively that way. Um, 
that's kind of what I do. Uh, it's really about reducing paper cuts uh, to teams and helping them be successful uh, and deliver business value as fast as possible. Okay, so, and thanks, John. I, I, that's fascinating. Now, where do you, so we talked about where you come from now. Where do you see yourself going? Like in five years, where is John going to be? What is he? What will he be doing? Well, ideally, I'm not doing the same thing that I'm doing today or tomorrow or even next week. Uh, ideally, that would be, uh, you know, growing uh, business value by continuing to, continuing to push the proverbial envelope, uh, staying at the edge, being focused on uh, the ev evolution of technology to deliver um, not only healthcare solutions, but any kind of business solution. Um, faster, cheaper, and smarter. And today that might mean cloud, but tomorrow that, you know, cloud, just like DevOps, uh, might not be a thing that's special anymore. It might not be a title. It might just be something that's um, people just do. That's the way they deliver solutions. So inevitably there will always be a next evolution of that. And right now my next evolution happens to be in the container space. I'm very focused on uh, building the enterprise lifecycle for containers and helping people understand how how do they deliver their solutions in a container and what does that mean, uh, what tools do they need, what practices do they need, what culture do they need. All of those things go in as go in as ingredients of being successful. And I'm I'm hoping to help teams bake their uh, product cakes uh, as successfully as they possibly can and. Uh, lead the enterprise towards those solutions in a way that meets all of our functional and non-functional requirements. And I kind of see myself continuing down that path, be it containers or or whatever VNext happens to be. Okay, and that's I find it fascinating. We'll we'll talk about that containers in just a second. So Absolutely. so we talked about where you come from and where you're going, where you're, you see yourself going. Now tell me about, and this can be beyond DevOps. Tell me about what you've learned. I think over. You know, in my career, uh, having spent time on product teams and on platform teams and, you know, writing a lot of code myself and transitioning to helping other people write code, um, a lot of things I've learned is, is that the little things, the little paper cuts are the things that go the long way. And a lot of time it isn't really the technology that is the problem or is the issue. It's the willingness to see the problem differently from a different perspective uh, and and get up on, you know, I, I went to a training class many, many moons ago and the instructor of that training class asked us all to stand up on the table, literally get up on the chair and stand up on the table. And then he asked the question, do you see things differently? And it was an interesting physical analog to uh, what you do in the enterprise space. If you're a team that's always been delivering a piece of software the same way, same software, same solution set, same coding practices, sometimes it's good to stand up on the, the analog of the physical table and see things from another perspective. So a lot of what I've learned is helping people see and get up on their table and see it a different way, helping that team that's always been delivering their solution on an IIS box to maybe think about, have you thought about a PaaS solution? Have you thought about a containerized solution? Here's some of the benefits and helping kind of take that fear away, the fear of not knowing, um, uh, help people understand not only the, 
you know, the obviously outlined technical benefits that people see in conferences galore, but also, you know, what does that mean to the people that are on the team? What, what kind of benefits does that bring the team as far as like work-life balance and um, their ability to focus on what they want to learn and what they want to do next? Uh, we kind of forget about that sometimes as technologists. We think it's just all about the shiny. It's all about micro benchmarking of string libraries is the coolest thing to do. But um, it, in the long run, it's it's really about can I take a team and bring them joy, bring them happiness? Can I you never know a team unless you see someone who struggled to deploy something to production. The magic that they see when they see a uh, release definition flow that product to production without them lifting a finger, how much magic that instills in people that has never seen that. When you've done it a while, that that's no longer magical because it's explainable and it's just the way you deliver software. But for a team that's never done that before, it's pretty awesome to see them transition from right-click deploy from file folder to flowing their solutions into operations. And to make a long story short, I've learned along the way that sometimes it's good to see those different perspectives and help other people see those different perspectives. And ultimately, that's that's what helps us all win. And this this is interesting because I've I've worked with a lot of architects and. Um, the good ones are very highly opinionated, right? Um, and yet there's also, how do I put this? There's a, one really good one I worked with at Columbia Sportswear who was, um, he was very pragmatic. He was able to meet with developers and engineers and come to understand their point of view. And he, he understood that, you know, we have to sometimes, we can't always have a pure, um, sometimes best in class, it, it can mean different things. So how do you yourself, like how do you take on the, the point of view of the development or the operations team that you're working with? Well, I work with a lot of different architecture organizations and I, I've heard some terms coined throughout the years like a an astronaut architect kind of out in space or a seagull architect which will kind of fly through the window and crap all over your plans and I've always, you know, resigned myself to not be that guy and to take the perspective of empathy. Uh, so really have a deep empathy for where these product teams are coming from or what they're trying to do and really understand that, you know, they're under a triple constraint of time, scope and cost, mainly uh, cost and, and time. And to understand that, you know, they're often not provided the air cover to go learn a new technology. It's often forced upon them. Uh, to go do that. The better teams are ones that have self-starters that go off and they'll learn a technology proactively, but more often than not in the enterprise world, there's lots of, I think Scott Hanselman coined the term dark matter developers. They they kind of exist, but you can't really observe them. Well, we, you know, that that's typical in a large enterprise of any sufficient size. And it's those individuals that you need to win. And, and I feel like you combat that in a couple of different ways. Number one, it's the empathy dimension, which may sound strange from a technologist perspective. I'm, you know, touchy-feely here, but that's not Very really... Very touchy-feely, uh, yeah. It, it is, but it is, I mean, but the more... circles and stuff, right? It, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is, but, you know, you sit and you 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 talk their language. You, you sit in a room. You sit side-by-side side with, with teams, and you understand what they're trying to achieve and why they're trying to achieve it. And all of a the sudden, there's a certain degree of connection that is built with that. Uh, to give you kind of a, a quick uh, rabbit hole story, um, over the last six months, I've been involved in a couple of different product launches. 
and they've gone two very divergent directions. One, one product launch was I got involved last year and sat with the, the product team that was building the capability. And we met every week and we talked about their goals and we talked about where they were going. And I provided, you know, a, a engineering and, and architectural guidance. And this, this April, that product was shipped and was successful. On, on the other hand, uh, we've had a number of very reactive, I need this yesterday, you're only involved when there's a roadblock, help us unblock the roadblock, not involving the, the platform team early enough to be successful. And every single one of those types of examples have failed. And a large degree of that is, is the team was not invited to be a participant, to be an active in, you know, team member of solving, you know, whatever the, the problem is. So I've, I've learned along the way to um, really get engaged with people's problems and, and really understand what their problems are because in the long run that ultimately yields significantly less technical debt. And while it might seem a little touchy-feely and, and uh, you know, everybody uh, weaving baskets and, and singing kumbaya, it's more about getting ahead of what they're trying to do and try to be there as a platform team six months before they are. So a good example, team wants to ship their solutions in, in containers. Well, the platform team needs to be there too. We need to be there with the skill sets. We need to be there with the policies. We need to be there with the capabilities. So hopefully we can deliver magical experiences to them and we can be ready when they're ready. And uh, that whole idea of getting ahead and, and really understanding where they're going is the difference between just being a a uh, highly paid engineer with an architect title and really doing proper architecture and, and really, you know, staying engaged with what people are trying to achieve so that uh, we win as one instead of little pockets of the organization trying to, you know, uh, dictate technology choices or, or recipes or patterns or that kind of thing. I love it, John. That's great. Um, something interesting, because it sounds like containers is going to be a big focus um, for Humana in, in the next couple of years. Now I have I have this this great book on Terraform um, that I'm looking through right now, um, and it mentions the author is very opinionated, which is great. And he says, listen, if you he says all these configuration management tools, you know, Ansible and Chef and Puppet, he says they all existed well before containers came along. He says if you are using Docker or Packer images with Terraform, you don't really most of the, your configuration management needs are taken care of. Like you're not going to get drift. Mm -hmm. Because you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're doing, these are immutable architecture, right? Infrastructure yep. where we're blowing away these environments and creating them from mm -hmm. a cookie cutter. And we don't need to worry about um, enforcing this with configuration management because the life cycle of these individual VMs or, or services is so short. Is that, do you find that to be true? Well, uh, let me tell you a quick story and, and it'll kind of uh, answer the question in, in that way and other ways. Very early on in our cloud journey, we implemented a significant amount of IaaS in, in another cloud platform. And the choice to do a lot of IaaS was very much rooted in, we're going to just treat our data center, we're going to treat cloud as though it's an extension of our data center. It's just, we're doing all the same things culturally that we've always done. We're going to just do them in a different cloud platform. Right. And if you, if you take that approach, if you, if you think about solving problems that way, you you don't shift the paradigm to take advantage of those characteristics. So in a container world, you're really talking about determinism when you're doing a build. The same thing you build each time, every time, all the time is the thing you get. 
And when you do IaaS, particularly long-running IaaS, you, you don't have that degree of determinism without having shifted the build process of your image left to the point where you're leveraging Packer or you're leveraging a CI and CD pipeline to do image management and image distribution. And for an enterprise like us that has really started in their journey with these long-running IaaS instances, even in the form of VMs on-prem, but now also in the cloud, there's a significant mindset shift to shift away from we're going to deliver the operating system and then we're going to apply can, um, a desired state configuration in Puppet or Ansible or Chef or what have you to this world of where we've shifted the baking of the process left and we get the same immutable deterministic artifact as a consequence or as a result of that pipeline. We're not there yet. That's We're learning that and going that direction. But that's exactly what the container ecosystem promises. And, and like operating system image management, you know, container image management is also relevant. Where it becomes very interesting is traditional IaaS, you have a division of labor that is separated around the operating system boundary, where there's an operations team that's accountable and responsible for delivering patch management and updates and things like that to these long-running IaaS instances. And you have the development team that is deploying their middleware and their, their workloads on top of that. In the container world, things get shifted around a little bit because now all of a sudden the, the uh, point of a container is to manage dependencies. So application team or product team is managing their appropriate dependencies by packaging those things into a container. The question becomes in that developer feedback loop of shipping their container, who becomes accountable and responsible for managing the life cycle of that container? Who's managing vulnerabilities? Who's managing um, uh, updates to the container's uh, core base image? These are all things we're learning and figuring out and trying to get our head around who in the organization becomes accountable for that. Is it a centralized team? Well, we know that centralized work doesn't scale. So it's got to become an accountability of the development teams, which means that they have to have and they have to be equipped with the skill sets that are above and beyond just their workloads. Now they're accountable for learning about the operating system images, learning about the feedback loops around vulnerabilities through scanning tools and things like that that they never had to think about before. So inevitably, this discussion around operating system images and container images leads back to the same exact thing, which is the, the model is changing. And if we want determinism out of our builds, then that means that the teams need to become a much more single unit of delivery instead of the traditional kind of bifurcated enterprise model of operations versus development. And that's forcing us to really transition to a matrixed organization, one that isn't divided along organizational boundaries and, you know, tickets flying back and forth through ticketing systems. Instead, we're thinking about more of it as we're embedding those skill sets on the teams to make sure that those teams are successful and they get latitude of, of the whole stack, the whole thing, all the things they, they really start to imagine and, and deliver on. So Humana is trying to transform to a matrixed organization where um, Perhaps you are still shared services model, but you have like these virtual um, cross-functional teams. That's like yeah, that's DBAs, you know, the, your yeah. your physical reports stay the same, right? 
uh, you're working on a, a project team, a product team. And even that is becoming blurry, like the, the dotted line relationships between, uh, you know, the the organizational structure is starting to shift and starting to break down a little bit from that traditional enterprise model of and in, in labor division to one that is a little bit more embedded. Um, it kind of depends on the product by product use case and the skill set of the team, keeping in mind, too, that like like all things we're learning as much as anyone else is learning. So we're making lots of mistakes and hopefully learning from them. Uh, but along the way, we're we're figuring out what that means. And uh, right now, that's a fair characterization. But I think in the long run, it's going to shift more and more to the embedded skills within the product team. And instead of having a shared pool of you know um, technical focus like cloud guy or DBA guy or or uh, you know, fill in capability or non-functional requirement. That's going to get baked into the product team. It, it almost has to if these teams want to go fast and and really adopt that microservices architecture and mindset. And this is something that um, I think about quite often uh, because we're in this whole shift left movement. We're shifting left on security, yep. right? With DevSecOps, we're shifting left on quality. Now testing becomes more and more important. Um, we're talking about containers and having to care more about the operating system. Wow, we're putting a lot of burden on the engineers and development groups. Um, so Amazon says, look, you can't just, let's just all move to the cloud and expect your teams to do it. You must train them. And they say, we look for at least a 10% certification, mm -hmm. like, you know, Amazon certified. Uh, do you find that true, like at Humana? Do you, is certification important? How do you? A lot of companies seem to want to do this push without up up training their their teams. There was a time. <laughs> it, it does, and there was a time that that was not important, and last year it became important, particularly around the realization that you know we are moving to these cloud platforms. You know, Azure in, in our world has been very focused on PaaS over IaaS. That's changing slightly, but it's that's really the been the focus. And with such from a focus on, yeah. yeah, from the beginning, it's been very focused on PaaS. And with that, that's meant that the way you do things is different and doing things differently typically involves some kind of education and training and culture mindset. And with that also comes kind of a concerted effort across the organization to really not only focus on certification, but more importantly than just achieving certification is really maintaining that lifelong learning, really maintaining that skill set and constantly challenging the different dimensions of skill set. So I think it's incredibly important. And I think that the role of certification on any of the cloud platforms really um, helps the team understand not only the depth and breadth of the platforms they're getting into, but hopefully provides that team maybe that different perspective I spoke of earlier, which is may you know, maybe I don't need those IaaS instances anymore to solve my problem. Maybe I can go use a um, an Azure app service or a um, service fabric mesh or something to solve my use case instead of um, doing the things that I've always done. And that that's been very successful in in my mind of that transition of really focusing on certification and then more importantly focusing on maintaining that certification. Do you guys um, like keep track of certification levels as a KPI or I mean how do you like encourage that, that I'm thinking about that dark matter developer right 
heads down yep. programmer, very comfortable in the way things have always been done 10, 15 years ago. How do you reach out to that guy and, and get him interested in, in taking on the cloud? Sometime last year, there was a kind of a, an enterprise announcement or an enterprise um, focus on um, communicating that the cloud is really the future. And we really do need a focus on that learning. And, and as a consequence of that, different uh, organizational structures are, are keeping track of, of teams and team members who have achieved a certain level of certification and have now started baking that into um, readiness conversations. So, for example, when a team says, I see this shiny cloud thing and I want me some, um, how do I get my product onto the cloud? Uh, part of that conversation is not just a technical readiness, but also a cultural readiness. Do, does your team have a, a certain number of people on the team that have gone through and, and done some degree of certification? And as time evolves, as time goes on, the bar will continue to rise for that with the expectation that teams over time have the majority of their team certified on a particular thing that they're focused on. And obviously we can't, being the cloud, being such a broad platform, it's it's ridiculous to think that every team would have every competency covered underneath their umbrella. But the broader the perspective, the more enabled those teams will be. And the reward will long-term be self-service. The more, okay. the more teams bring to the table with readiness and certification, the more they're enabled and trusted to go do things themselves. And the less they bring to the table, the more centralized the work that will be. That almost sounds a little bit like the Google SRE movement. To some where, degree, yeah. You know, we're gonna if if you aren't ready and enabled, we're you know there's a, a tighter leash. Yeah. Correct. Yep. And it has to be that way for security reasons and for for uh, growth reasons and 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 largely technical debt reasons as well. So do does Humana have like a, a cloud center of excellence? How, how do you build that sense of community? Well, we do. Um, so there's several different architecture organizations. Our, uh, our cloud platform team that, that kind of is at the center of a lot of it. And then we have an enterprise architecture organization that kind of has been doing uh, some of the uh, readiness assessments and, and interviews with, with teams that are expressed interest in potentially taking their on-premise thing and going and reimagining that thing in the cloud. And a lot of that um, really comes down to kind of three or four pillars. One is the education pillar and training pillar that we talked about a moment ago. Another one is the financial pillar, you know, whether they understand what that means and are, are they are they and their business partners understanding that the cloud model isn't a, you know, you buy it and then you run it into the ground for 30 years, but instead you, you know, it's an ongoing recurring model of cost. And um, at, when you don't pay anymore for your cloud, solution you also don't have a cloud solution anymore so it becomes you know that prioritization discussion and then the third one is obviously the security pillar of all of it which is understanding what how those things are different when you move away from the the uh the safety cocoon of the corporate firewall uh and, and into the um the the cloud space what does that mean for the team and their understanding of how to do networking securely, how to do uh, identity and access management characteristics successfully and at scale? 
um, those three things become elements of the interview and readiness discussions that happen with teams before they even begin the work to actually adopt the product and the, the platforms and things like that. And then our team gets engaged in uh, some of those conversations, depending upon how far along they are on the kind of continuum of, of that maturity model. And then we also get engaged when we start talking about, well, now I have a myriad of five or six different choices uh, to solve my problem, which is the right choice for me. Then we start talking about non-functional characteristics, various performance characteristics, or, you know, the, there's a myriad of other things beyond performance, but we start looking at that and saying, what, what fits your team's skill set? What fits your team's um, uh, goals? Uh, where are you today? Where do you want to be in a year from now? We get engaged and start educating about, okay, well, all right, team, you're coming from a full framework application, and we know you're not going to rewrite it all in .NET Core tomorrow. So maybe for you, the right answer is a Windows container and service fabric. And maybe along the way, you start decomposing your monolith down into microservices, and maybe you rewrite those things and you do them in cloud-native um, functions, uh, or or maybe you do those things in containers or you know something along that continuum. Uh, we get involved with that and give people some advice and some practices and some things that we've seen be successful, and we help them guide them towards success in that sense. That's interesting. So. Um... Just to kind of repeat these things, then you mentioned three or four pillars that you're looking on this kind of a, an informal discussion with the team, an intake process. Mm -hmm. Yep. You say, okay, we, we look at it first, education and training. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we look at like the financial. Do you understand that if you stop paying for this, Mr. Business Person, you no longer have a product, right? Mm -hmm. So this is there's going to be ongoing cost. Mm -hmm. Third, security. Mm -hmm. Fourth is the non-functional characteristics, like. Yep. Yep. Things like like what are your the hidden expectations around uh, performance is one right. Mm -hmm. and there's a few other examples we could talk about, but these are the things that oftentimes cause business people to say the project is a failure, even though we've met all of the checked all the boxes. Mm -hmm. Their expectations have not been met, and it, it's a hidden rock right that people can stumble on. Absolutely, it is. And uh, lately, the the big topic has been observability. How observable is your platform? How observable is your system? And when I say that, I mean way beyond just things like logging, way beyond things like performance metrics. Like, is it is it auditable? Is it traceable? Does it meet you know the myriad of um, compliance requirements across the different compliance uh, organizations, HIPAA and High Trust, and you know there's a variety of others that require that your system be observable uh, and be auditor friendly. And uh, those things need to be oh, – people need to be aware of that as they start adopting the cloud platforms just so that they're ready, so that they understand that, you know, yes, the platforms provide some of this for free, but there's a number of things that are baked into your application that may need to be refactored in order to achieve those non-functional requirements. And it's funny that a lot of times I was talking to a, a person last week, and he said, yeah, it, the first thing to go – Besides architecture, he says testing and monitoring. Mm -hmm. So like at, at Humana, you're dealing with a project that all oh, the business needs is right now. We don't have time to worry about unit testing, and we especially don't want to be spending $1,500 a month on a monitoring software. We don't, you know, we don't need that. How do you prevent, how do you, how do you force the business to um, kind of think about quality? 
Well, part of the expectation of moving to the cloud platforms is is that all of your uh, your product has been codified into a delivery pipeline. That's one of the requirements of moving to a cloud platform, whatever that cloud platform might be. And you know, in today's world, that may mean Azure DevOps and release pipelines. It could mean something else, but it has to be expressed as a pipeline. And as part of that pipeline, we are moving away from doing things in a very manual manual way of asserting whether they meet uh, various um, policy goals and really baking those things as build activities or release activities as, as almost like an API for policy and shifting away that manual task. And one of those things is meeting the testing requirements. So do you have a set of automated in unit tests and um, maybe automated integration tests and possibly automated functional or UI tests baked into your pipeline that provide a degree of uh, license to move at speed, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, versus the kind of manual, error-prone, um, catastrophic types of failures that happen when people do stuff manually. And that, that testing dimension is one of the dimensions of maturity that a team needs to reach before they're allowed to proceed, particularly with brownfield applications and definitely native greenfield things need to meet that as an expectation before they, they, they start building and architecting their solution on a cloud platform. That's an expectation that's set. So for those business individuals that don't think that quality is important, the, the penalty comes when all of the distribution and deployment is done in a very manual way and also subject to all of the additional scrutiny of doing it manually. And, and we're rewarding those that have adopted testing and quality practices beyond just testing, but you know, security scanning uh, practices and kind of um, rewarding them by saying, you can go fast because you're, you're meeting all of those check marks and um, really making that visible and observable in a way that we can say these pipelines are kind of these certified, uh, they, they've met all of these policy goals and these other pipelines or these other teams are, are not quite there yet and might require additional scrutiny. And developers want velocity. So you're, you're trying to act both as a, a brake and an accelerator. You know, Indeed. like, hey, yep. your, your pipeline set, guess what? Now you're observable. Now you've done all, yep. you know, now you can move at speed and you can allow the, the business to say, you know what, we could really save a couple months here if we just throw out testing and throw out monitoring. You, you just there, can't, you can't budge on quality. Absolutely. And, and you, you mentioned that, you know, we're acting as a break in an accelerator. And I'll add another descriptor there that we're actually acting as an amplifier. So in today's uh, world, you know, we, we've been conditioned to have a, a team doing the thing or looking at the thing or verifying the thing. You know, that's the historical enterprise culture, just not just us, but just all over the place. And what we're doing is we're saying, and I say this probably multiple times a week, it's, it's okay for a team to take a dependency on a service that I make, but it is not okay for a team to take a dependency on me or my team members because we're finite, but we can scale our services uh, to meet their needs. 
And the same thing is now being applied, that mindset of you have to make this thing a service. You have to make this thing something consumable by others in the policy space. What does it mean to go fast? Well, you have to meet X, Y, Z check marks. Well, if I can tell you that your pipeline meets those needs, then all of a sudden I can give you the license to ship two or three times a day, and you don't have to go through the traditional um, change approval board, you know, the cab world that you know most enterprises are mired in. Um, you don't necessarily need to do that because you've met all of the requirements of you have tests, you've done security scans, you've done uh, all of these things that make your software ready for operations, and you also have put it in a pipeline, which means that it's going to do the same thing each time, every time, all the time. Um, and, and with all of those things combined, you, you get the ability to captain planet your solution together and move at high speed and high velocity versus kind of the one-offs need to move at kind of uh, the slow lane. I love it. That, that's so great. Um, so because uh, you, you're using the developer's desire to go fast as kind of a um, – it's, it's a good carrot to use. Now, do you guys favor like um, – monitoring as a service like a cots kind of a product or what's the framework in logging what does that look like over at humana well that's an interesting question so i'll answer that question this way without um so i'll, I'll name drop a few names but uh we kind of are favoring anything and everything that is native so we're trying to move away from you know I, and obviously i speak for me and i don't necessarily speak for you know, Humana as a whole on, on, on a lot of these different um, discussions. But from my perspective, the choice to go native is one of having learned that doing the Gartner or, you know, whatever model of choose the best, choose the, the best of breed kind of thinking, that, that kind of thinking ends in integration hell uh, and, and really high integration costs. So we're trying to choose the most native thing that we can possibly get away with and stop trying to choose one tool to rule them all or one monitoring tool, one whatever, and really trying to start thinking about how do I ingest, how do I make visible, how do I create perspectives of you know a, a monitoring tool. So for example, let's say I'm leveraging log analytics or let's say I'm, I'm log, leveraging uh, Azure, Azure Sentinel as my seam tool. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to then turn around and take that thing and then trying to put it on-prem or pipe it off somewhere else to have one monster tool for everything. We're getting away from that, and we're trying to say, do the native thing. Do whatever is native on the respective cloud platforms because that's going to give you the best telemetry. That's going to give you the best perspective. And if there's an operational concern around needing to react to all of these different platforms, well, that becomes more of a conversation about a single view of what's going on less than it is the tooling itself, if that makes sense. It means you're, you're talking about dashboarding now. Right? Yeah, exactly. Perspectives and dashboarding and single panes of glass to see the world through versus the tooling. But hopefully, if, like if I was a developer working on an engineering team, I wouldn't be looking at a blank slate there at Humana, you, there'd be lessons I could pull from. So I wouldn't be, each project wouldn't have to rediscover all these lessons around monitoring. That's correct. Yep. And and we definitely have a degree of vice that we provide teams. Like for example, in the PaaS world, you know, we have policies enabled to 
turn on application or uh, application insights and um, drive things to log analytics for observability and here's some pre-canned visualizations from in, in Power BI or you know or whatever the analog is on all the other cloud platforms. We do have those types of kind of by default here is the thing, uh, but then there's also kind of that bigger super super point of wanting the operations teams and wanting the application teams to really start and stop thinking about it from the perspective of a tool and start thinking about it from the perspective of does this platform provide this characteristic or exhibit this characteristic uh, and that's where we say yep okay this this tool provides observability versus thou must use the tool we want to give people choice but we also want to give them a um, you know, some kind of a, a default if they don't have one already. And do you guys, a lot of companies, I really like the fact, by the way, you're allowing teams to kind of, you're setting a standard, but how you go about it is up to the delivery teams. That's so great. Do you guys like insist on Azure DevOps as like the default? Um, yes. And and I'll, I'll answer that or provide a little bit of context. So we, we, the old enterprise DevOps team that doesn't exist anymore inherited a world where it was a uh, the best of breed thinking. We, we'd have a different CI system and we'd have a different uh, uh, release system and we'd have a different um, uh, tool for managing agile work and backlog planning. And all of those different tools and ended up creating significant uh, integration debt and the integration tax man would come a knocking <laughs> and they, they would they would want their money and that money was an, an endless uh, it, it, we ended up spending lots and lots and lots and lots of more time than we were spending on delivering value was spent on trying to integrate all of these things so there is a significant better together story to be had when it's a platform instead of an individual tool and we have since gone away from that and said, no, we're going to do the better together thing. And there may be there may be CI systems, there may be CD systems that exhibit some characteristic that is better. Um, you know, maybe somebody's build works better in Jenkins than it does in whatever. But by default, we're going to say this is a better together story here, not a single best of breed play anymore. And that has proved to be very successful. And helping teams deliver the characteristic of uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery. When there is a justifiable reason, we will potentially go out and explore, you know, a different um, tool set or a different augmentation of that tool set to deliver on something that someone is trying to do. But more often than not, we find that by sticking to that better together thinking, we don't tend to need to, to deviate uh, as it it uh, it kind of solves itself by by virtue of just constantly evolving and maybe meeting those needs that it didn't meet six months ago. So so far that's been kind of the the strategy, and and we guide people towards more. Does your solution exhibit a CI and CD practice? Less so than we say go use this tool, and we find that that's a successful message for people to hear. And once they understand that they don't need tool X to do CI and CD then they start thinking that way too and um, and everybody's successful. I love that. 
So let's say that I'm working on an engineering team there and I came up with something around, uh, let's say, I don't know, um, serverless, let's say. It's a great little innovation. How do I share that information at Humana? Do you guys have like a DevOps days or, uh, you know, an open lab kind of a thing where we talk about lessons learned? How do you share tweaks with other teams? Well, so that's evolving. Uh, so early on, we did do that. We had a an annual, and that went, I think, two years uh, where we would share kind of the uh, where we're going, kind of that enterprise direction. As the organization has become more and more matrixed, uh, there's a number of different venues. We have some um, social media um, uh, forum that we call Buzz uh, that um, just recently migrated to Yammer. And uh, in that, that migration, um, that, that forum or those communities have really become a great way for people to help other people solve their own problems, if that makes any sense, really leveraging the community to help the community rather than the team is the place to go. Kind of uh, building that community and fostering that community has been one of our missions from very early on back in the enterprise DevOps time frame and, and even now in the cloud platform time frame, having that sense of community is, has been very important. And that's one way that we we do that. We also do lunch and learns and we do what, uh, a program called Share What You Know, uh, where teams can bring to the table something that they're doing or working on or and really share it with others so that might uh, spawn some ideas. And um, with the cloud platforms being as broad and as deep as they are, it's almost a necessity to have those types of uh, events occur uh, for others to um, really leverage the breadth and depth of each other uh, so that they can learn about what you know another team is doing and maybe solve their problems a different way. The cloud platform team um, did a series of, of talks uh, that we called the Platform Skydive Series. And it was really meant to show the organization what we've achieved uh, in launching big products. And it, it went through a series of um, kind of at a very high level, like what is the cloud 101 type of thing, all the way through how we do identity and integration, um, how we deliver the platform, how we test the platform, and then dived, uh, took a dive into uh, the respective um, dimensions like data platform or the AI platform or the serverless platform, that kind of thing, introducing people to these very high-level Lego blocks. And then other teams have kind of come along and said, hey, that's kind of a good idea. Let's go do that for our product. And they'll maybe come in and do a dog and pony show of what they've achieved or what they're working on or something like that. And that tends to be the kinds of forms that we'll leverage for sharing those um, successes and, and, and oftentimes failures, uh, the things that didn't go well, and uh, what can you do differently next time to avoid the, the snake pits that we've fallen into or fallen into. And uh, that's, that's an interesting topic. We, I think so much of how an organization, how well they're built is how we respond to failure and mistakes. Do we shift blame? Do we, do we pretend like nothing mm -hmm. happened? Or do we try to learn and move on? How does that Absolutely. work at Humana? Do you guys do like blameless postmortems or? Um, well, not as well as we could. Uh, you know, like any large enterprise that is uh, risk averse. You know, you, you come from a, a culture and a set of practices that are very 
Um, there needs to be an owner. There needs to be someone who's accountable and responsible, and that's all great. But at the end of the day, it's really about learning of what we could do better. And I think as we become more and more matrixed, it's less about having a nectaring, and it's more about how do we do this differently next time. And that, that culture has evolved. That culture has changed. I think a, a large degree of the problem has been a the need for the way we think about change management to evolve. Uh, and I'm not thinking about like an organization. I'm just thinking about it conceptually as the need to manage change. How do we think about risk? How do we think about, you know, when something does go wrong, what do we do? And, you know, there's been an, an emphasis over a period of years where we have to prevent, 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 mm -hmm. prevent. Right. And we all know as technologists that it's impossible to prevent uh, problems in complex systems. Things are emergent. Thing, you know, chaos theory tells us that things are going to happen whether we plan for them or not. And what really matters is how do we respond when something goes wrong, and what do we do differently next time to have a different automated control to respond? Uh, do we do differently? Do something differently with monitoring? Do we do something differently with scaling? Do we? Uh, and, and ultimately, that's really where we're trying to shift away from trying to prevent everything and and more to when we do fall down, how do we get back up and how do we do that in a way that is successful and uh, controlled and and kind of that's where you enter the discussion about um, moving from pet servers to cont uh, immutable um, containers that that solves a huge number of problems or entire categories of problems of configuration drift and it works on my machine yeah yeah works on my machine types of problems just those things go away when you when you adopt and have the right practices so that's one of the um i guess one dimension of that cultural shift that's happening and we have a long road to hoe like every other large enterprise but we're heading that direction and hopefully we'll be successful so I, I think this is this is really interesting. So do you ask your developers to do some amount of production support? Well, like, like the change management model of old, um, support for a product and, and a platform has largely historically been bifurcated. There's been a support organization, and then there's been the development organization. And the, the twain rarely meet only only when there is a problem that is also shifting and we found that teams that are supporting the thing from top to bottom um and when i say supporting i i mean like they own the product they own the delivery of the product they own the bits to the buttons they have to think about before they light a, write a line of code how am i going to deploy version two version one is easy version two is not so easy now I got to think about upgradability and maintainability and, and uh, transitioning workloads from the first version of the thing to the next to the thing. Those are things that don't really get historically have not been thought about well when teams are focused purely on just the solution and not thinking about the non-functional requirements. And now that teams are starting to think that way, those types of conversations happen a lot more. Uh, and a large degree of that is is that we've insisted that our our operations friends, uh, our support friends, are part of the project plans, part of the product initiatives, so that they have a stake at the table when that product is is being envisioned, 
and can speak up about those characteristics. And I think that's changing the dimension a little bit of support and shifting it more towards the team owns it versus the, you know, there's a separate support uh, organization that owns it. And um, we're not there, but that's the trajectory we're headed. Yeah. You've brought up security now like a couple times. Yep. I'm curious. Uh, that obviously is something that's you're passionate about. Um, what does that look like right now at, at Humana? Where do you see it going? Security is a pillar that is baked into, you know, with a with an organization that deals with um, sensitive data, um, PII, personal health mm, information, like healthcare, PHI, yes. Uh, the, even, the penalties around HIPAA yeah, are so huge. Yes, they are. And having knowing that those things exist, we have to take every degree of caution to protect that data at all costs. Data is really the um, the one currency that um, needs to be protected as best as you, we possibly can. And taking shortcuts to go fast um, will inevitably lead to bad things happening. So we do our best to really maintain uh, the best data stewardship that we possibly can. So from a security dimension, it there's never enough. Uh, there's never enough eyes. There's never enough um, uh, actions that can be taken. But what we are doing is taking proactive steps like you know, leveraging some of the platform capabilities to help us understand where there's deficiencies. Um, so a good example is like Azure Security Center and Azure Sentinel helps us uh, understand uh, the observability of our solutions, both PaaS and, and IaaS, uh, gives us some insights into, you know, where we could do better, where we could do things differently, uh, potentially where we, you know, what compliance requirements we don't need to meet that maybe are things that are not necessary for the kinds of workloads that we have. Um, but taking every attempt to try to, when there is a, a problem, when there is a, uh, say, a vulnerability, uh, but, uh, not so much a vulnerability, but when there is an opportunity, we'll put it that way, and we'll stay positive. Um, bake that, <laughs> bake, bake that thing into something that's reproducible. So bake it into a policy, bake it into a uh, set of auditable controls that we have visibility to. There's nothing. The only thing worse than having a breach is having a breach and not knowing about it. And the the desire to um, not only constrain but secure, but also to have eyes on as much things that we possibly can, so we know as early as we possibly can, and as far left as we possibly can, uh, you know what potentially could go wrong. So, good example uh, of that conversation is just this week having that conversation of of uh, the de you know desire to meet the needs of the development teams that want to explore and play and go fast with shifting policy as far left as we possibly can. So that when I'm a developer, I'm building my product, I'm really developing against that production set of policies so that I, I get those paper cuts very early and I know what to expect when I get to production. And then by the time I've worked through those paper cuts, um, I'm hopefully in a completely 100% compliant state and I can deploy to operations without having to worry about my solution being breached or my solution having um, defects or vulnerabilities in, in whatever dimension that is. Um, so we – security is this evolving, never-ending, um, constant fire hose – that that deserves uh the you know the team platform team's attention in the sense that 
we're accountable and responsible for helping our security teams really consume the platform in the most native sense and educating them about ways that we can do things that maybe they weren't aware of. Uh, and then also producing um, the, f the capability to deliver those policies at scale and help them make sure that we're running in a compliant and a um, uh, auditable, traceable way as best that we possibly can. Do you guys do um, like penetration testing? Do you have like red blue team exercises? We do. Um, okay. that That's varies. always interesting, isn't it? It, it <laughs> is. War games. It, it is, especially when you don't know about them. Uh, and and that, that has been a, a very interesting dimension of um, uh, historically we've segregated our security teams to the degree that we don't really know when they're going to be doing penetration tests. They, they may just surprise you with a penetration test at any moment in time, and you may not be aware of it. And in some senses, that is good, and in some senses, it's bad because it may catch a product team maybe off, off guard. But there's been a couple of examples over the last year of successful penetration test activities that have yielded some hardening things that we've done. Um, really obscure types of use cases, things that you would never even think about. Um, they're they're running those types of not only automated but manual types of penetration tests, probing and looking for soft spots, looking for places that could be hardened even further, or um, to the point where you know it, there's um, lots of different controls at multiple different levels of depth to prevent and and uh, shield bad things from happening. And you know while every enterprise obviously has opportunity to grow, including ourselves. Um, we're, we're going to continue to add those layers of depth, and, and that will, will help make sure that the, the thing that is the most precious thing of, of all enterprises, our data, remains secure. I love it. Um, I know we're, we're kind of running a little overtime. I hope that's okay. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um, talk to me just, just a few more minutes. Um, microservices at Humana, uh, some people are like, oh, it's a fad, which seems ridiculous. Um, we have demonstrable success stories with Amazon and other companies, right? Yep. Um, and Microsoft, for instance, with Azure DevOps. So how do, how do you guys get, if you guys are adopting microservices, how do you get around some of the known deficiencies or the problems you have to compensate for around governance and performance and just the issues with distributed computing? So, so the first issue of distributed computing is the fallacy that just shipping something in a container equals microservice. That has been a, a um, educational challenge that persists, and I'm not entirely sure where that's propagated from or where that originates from, but there, there's a constant education that just delivering your software in a container does not make it a microservice. The outside of once that kind of education has been had and people realize that, oh, yeah, I guess there's a lot more to microservices than just the packaging technique. You, you start asking questions about, well, what about networking and what about trust relationships between services and what about single responsibility principle and how do I decompose my monolith uh, legacy service into a microservice and, you know, how do what what is the trade-off between the desire to have a single thing that I can reason over that is a mo monolith versus a lot of little things that do one thing very well uh, but there's lots of them, so it's more difficult to reason over all of them. Um, the challenge really is finding 
the right level of depth and breadth for a team where they're at. Uh, lots of vendors will come in and lots of lots of consultants will give you the answer that, oh, everything should be a microservice. Well, that's not entirely true. It all depends on what your goals are. And the architectural guidance that we have given teams is not everything needs to be a microservice. What needs to be a microservice is that which needs to scale. And finding the places in your architecture, the leaves of the tree per se, that need to scale separately from the trunk. And if you find a place in your application or you find a place in your system or workload uh, that requires that level of uh, that characteristic of, of scaling and um, being able to burst uh, up and down, left and right, horizontally, vertically, that is the thing that potentially you might want to consider a microservice for. And the rest of your solution, the rest of your application may be perfectly fine running as a tried and true traditional enterprise service capability. And that advice has really helped teams realize that they don't need to make everything a microservice. They can just really start with the things that are the, the scaling dimensions. And while that doesn't sell consulting hours, <laughs> it definitely – and it doesn't support people coming in with fancy diagrams and, and all that other kind of stuff. It helps teams tremendously prioritize, and we've been successful with that. And a lot of teams have walked back and said, you know what, we're we're happy with this service, we're happy with its its performance characteristics, but we're going to build this new thing, and the new thing is going to be a microservice. And and cats and dogs can live together. That's the power of of the cloud platforms is they can live together and they can coexist, and and so can legacy services, and so can uh, uh, modern refactored services. And getting away from that feeling and thinking of if I'm if I'm not refactoring, if I'm not doing everything in shiny new language, then therefore somehow that's bad or I should feel ashamed. There's nothing wrong with running a tried and true. Uh, it, it really matters more if it's a um, meeting your functional and non-functional requirements, your maintainability goals, your uh, ability to adapt and grow and how, how expensive it is to change the thing. Those are the dimensions that matter. The, the language choices, the technology choices are, are far less um, impactful to that. But we do advise it when teams come to the table and they're thinking about a greenfield solution, they really do think about how do they break their, their solution down into the smallest constituent parts possible and then model their pipelines and model their, their repos and model their um, architectural um, composition uh, that way because that we know that that is the thing that scales. And we also know that that is the thing that is the easiest to test. And uh, those two things combine equal success, and, and so have our teams that have done it that way. So, And this almost sounds like we're talking a little bit like um, taming the deadly uh, my, um, mainframe, right? Uh, like a strangler <laughs> fig pattern. Kind of, We're uh -huh. trying to peel off yep. some parts that don't scale, yep. right? Yes, exactly that, right. Like thinking about Humana where you mentioned, listen, we, we have these surge periods where yep. we don't know when it's going to happen. But we know suddenly four times as many people as we're expecting are all going to try to get on that elevator at mm -hmm. once. And it's mm -hmm. painful. How, what would that look like at Humana? Give it like a specific example. So would specific context. Service or? Um, it, it could be. So I'll, I'll use a narrative to kind of get to the specific example, but during our open enrollment periods uh, throughout the course of the year, there's different types of enrollment for different kinds of um, uh, products and services that we offer. 
And whenever one of those open enrollment periods begins, there's a huge surge in everybody deciding that today's the day that they're going to go do the thing. Uh, they're they're going to go sign up. They're going to – that typically happens either at the very beginning of an enrollment period or more often than not the very last day of a, an enrollment period. Right. People like to procrastinate and absolutely you know, right. Show up at the very you know eleven fifty nine p.m. <laughs> you know they, they're doing the thing like everyone else is. So right. with that comes a good example would be like identity. So uh, an identity service that's processing identity requests, or let's say it's a um, retrieving uh, a member's um, details. Uh, any of those are ripe for microservices orientation because they're they're things that are burstable and they don't need to necessarily run at peak 24/7, 365. So we're really focused right now on finding the places that are surge demand. Uh, they're they're very seasonal. Uh, and beyond – even within the seasonality of the business, it's also spikes within that seasonality, uh, and those are the things that are absolutely ripe for um, that, that surge demand. Another dimension would be um, uh, IoT and uh, devices that we integrate with from a, a health rewards type platforms. Uh, we, we ingest a lot of that uh, IoT data. Uh, coming from third parties and things like that, and that all has to be burstable as well, particularly when there's kind of incentives associated to particular like uh, challenges or particular goals that maybe they they roll out as part of a member base of you know achieve X number of steps and and achieve some reward or whatever. We'll see demand blow through the roof. Uh, in the historical legacy architectures, and now that stuff has largely been refactored to be burstable uh, so that it can absorb the, the demand when and where those things occur and then scale back down so that we're not you know, spending lots and lots of dollars to idle web servers that sit at 1% utilization for most of the year. And there's no reason really to go microservice. Um, the in the use cases you talked about, like with identity management or uh, like well, a number of steps or things like that, these health rewards goals, these are all multi-customer, multi, like mm -hmm. there could be many products and many projects that could have this need. Yep. So yep. that way you're opening up a store, you know there's going to be customers for this microservice beyond yep. just one person. It, we're also dogfooding a lot of that stuff outside of the products that we're selling from a company and really thinking about the products that we're offering to other teams. How do we be more burstable? How, how does the cloud platform team produce services that are burstable? Because we'll have periods of time during the year where teams will get funded for projects and things like that, and they all show up at the door at the same time saying, I need X, Y, Z. Well, what do we do differently to anticipate that demand uh, and we're thinking about that a lot. We haven't figured it all out yet, but we're thinking about how do we how do we be more burstable? How do we be more cloud cloudy? Uh, and the better we can do that, the better we can kind of not only do it for ourselves and kind of dog food our own recommendations, but then also have a reference architecture to say, here's the way we scale ourselves, go forth and do something similar and and here's some successes with that. I like that. So you have like a reference architecture framework, and that way it's not, well, we've got X number of architects. It's a linear progression. We mm -hmm. have these number of products. We need to add on X number of architects. Hopefully you can kind of, you know, expand your – without having to expand your team, you can expand your capabilities. I the like key, that. 
the key is that it can't be some um, uh, it can't be some fake like Contoso esque kind of use case. It has mm-hmm. to be something that we ship as a product for ourselves that we dog food and we take seriously, or it won't ever be it won't live a long healthy life. It will be abandoned where, and we don't want that. We want it to be, you know, a, a characteristic of the way we interact with the rest of teams. Some of the products and services that we we provide, we want those characteristics to be demonstrated by how we operate, not even just from a technology. Battle tested and human exactly. or yep. your business specific. Otherwise, exactly. it just it's just yes. fake. Got to live the dream. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> You mentioned one of the things that stuck out the most when I talked to you a year ago or so. Um, you said laziness is a survival skill. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it absolutely is true. Yeah, because um, I'm fantastically lazy, you know. So yep. talk to you about that. What, what does that mean? So so that's a very interesting quip and quote that you, you, you pulled out. So laziness, you know, all of the best engineers and developers that I've ever interacted with are incredibly lazy. They don't want to do the same thing more than once. They really want to maximize the investment of their time in doing a thing. They don't want to be bogged down in monotonous uh, monotonous work or, or things that don't add value. So we we as a cloud platform team, and, and me in particular, when I try to deliver value, I, I look at it from the perspective of how far can I, uh, what can I do to maximize the input that I'm providing versus the output that I'm, I'm uh, achieving? And a good example of that is rather than me writing an email multiple times to multiple different people, I've instead shifted away from that and I write blog posts internally and I'll send people links to blog posts. And then that scales, and I don't give the gift of keystrokes to to those that are unworthy. Um, <laughs> that you know that that kind of thing. But but also just really leveraging tools. You know, if a tool can do it, if I can go buy a twenty dollar add-in or twenty dollar extension for Visual Studio or something, and that saves me hours of time um, in a week, which is dozens of hours in a month, which is potentially hundreds of hours in a year. And I scale that by all the people that are on my team. That's some serious time savings for something that, you know, off the box is peanuts in price, but historically was always kind of, you know, um, you know, that whole, uh, penny wise pound foolish type of thing, mm-hmm. you know, where you fixate on the, the small costs. We're thinking differently now and really thinking about how do we maximize our, input and and that you know in some sense is is laziness and we don't want to repeat ourselves and it's really about thinking smartly uh think smarter not harder uh that's really what it's about and and i like to call that laziness because in some degree it is and it's (laughs) you have to be selfish and really guard your time and and i try to do that by maximizing my input and maximizing my output well so for example you say listen guys instead of rolling our own you know, let's use log analytics. Let's use Azure Sentinel. You know, exactly let's, right. We know these yeah. things are going to be keep on getting better and better. So instead of trying to be creative and hardworking, let's be lazy and just use yep. what's built into yep. the platform natively. And oftentimes that's in direct support of the mantra of better together. Why go off and build the thing? You know, that whole uh, it ain't rolled here syndrome has been um, over the years uh, a killer. 
and, and we're getting away from that. And, and like you said, um, leverage the platform first and extend where you need the differentiation. I think one of my compatriots once said that you, you uh, buy for commodity and build for differentiation. And, and that mantra has sought well with the team is, is that we don't want to be building for commodity. If there's something on the market that solves the problem, use the something on the market. And, and obviously there's caveats to everything, but mm-hmm. you know, if I'm not going to go build my own log analytics, there's no need to do that. The, the thing has been solved. It's a solved problem. Go use the platform capability and then go on and start solving more interesting problems. We don't want to be plumbers. That's not our, our job. We want to be focused on delivering business value. And I, I'm, I don't need to be building the next framework per se in the sky. I, I need to be focused on, you know, and sometimes it's necessary, but in most cases it's, uh, you know, these are the Lego blocks. Let's assemble them into an interesting model. And I'm here to help you understand what those Lego pieces look like and what they do. So one last question then, John. But by the way, I've really enjoyed this talk. Um, let's say, let's say you can, how, you've been at Humana now for three years, uh, eight years, eight years. Holy smokes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So let's go back five years then. Sure. Um, we got a time machine. There's so many aspects of the DevOps movement and a lot of people get overwhelmed. We have feature toggles, we have configuration mm-hmm. management, we have continuous delivery and all the practices around that, uh, version control, hypothetical driven development. So many things going back five years. What do you wish you kind could kind of bring back with you and push on a little earlier? I think going back five years, I really wish that we as an enterprise had really gotten more serious about our version control practices uh, and moving away from kind of this uh, centralized version control uh, thinking and really adopting a one repo, one pipeline thinking. Uh, That has continued to be a challenge for teams who have built this, you know, the big monolith in the sky, one giant repo that has all the things. That has become a challenge for people to break down into different separate pipelines so that they have a different shipping cadence, different risk profile, if we had gone back five years ago and really gotten serious about that, and I'm not saying that we weren't serious. I'm just saying that if we got really doubled down our efforts, uh, that alone, I think, would have accelerated our timeline to adopting these um, practices more globally. Uh, I, I think of all things, that would have been the one. So you guys try to ship on the same cadence. Well, we did. Uh, many, many years ago uh, that there was concerted efforts to do like enterprise release management and coordinated cadences and things. And um, people are finding that as they decompose their software down into smaller and smaller parts, they can ship different pieces of that software on different cadences. And that's a good thing. We want them to do that. In the world of the monolith, back at five years ago, it was very difficult to ship one piece of that thing without shipping all of it. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is those, mm-hmm. those smaller repos with, with individual pipelines and individual tests that aren't trying to test the entire system. They're only testing one functional correctness dimension of that goes a long way in helping people go fast. And um, over the five years, I've observed so many teams falling down um, when they, they 
start implementing the DevOps tool, and then all of a sudden they hit this wall of technical debt, and they have to slow down to go fast. And, oh, yeah. And that that is really what ends up happening is there's an adoption curve. They, they don't realize what they need to do with the cultural practices or with the, the uh, practices portion. They adopt the tool. Their tool all of a sudden shows them where all of the technical debt is really, really fast, and then they've got to stop, fix the technical debt before they can continue on that maturity curve. And that's what I've lived through over the last five years, and, and hopefully we're beyond that, but you know, there's still pockets of the organization that are there. That's another thing that when you talked about um, – I, I like hearing this because so many times it's like we get this glowing picture of success stories like at the conferences, <laughs> and it's not that way. It's always imperfect nope. anywhere. It is, yep. And, and with Humana, the, the pain point's been it's long-lived feature branches, that integration mm-hmm. credit card that you talked about. And that's mm-hmm. still an issue that you guys are kind of trying to work at. Um, yep. I love that saying that uh, – uh, <laughs> I love this saying of um, – from uh, the, the Azure DevOps lead, Aaron Bjork, he says, you can't cheat shipping. So in other words, we, we, we found, yep. we used to do these long, you know, long release cycles of a year, a year and a half, six months. And, and mm-hmm. he says, forcing people to release more often by itself exposed those weaknesses better than anything yep. else. On, on our, our teams, the mantra that I used to, to use when I was trying to convince people to adopt a CI and CD pattern is I used to say shipping is a feature, and you should do so early and often and use that feature. Uh, and, and to the same, same results, you know, getting people to do things that they don't want to do uh, early and often helps them do those things better, and shipping is one of them. So absolutely. I love it. That's so great. Uh, you mentioned tsunami releases, and I love that. Ah. I've used that many times. I've stolen that. So I use it all the time. <laughs> devastating, huge release, you know, waves that, that leaves just, you know, flotsam and jetsam in there, wake the remaining uh-huh. for weeks and months. Um, so I love that. Shipping is a feature. Do so early and often. Yeah. Um, any thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Well, a, a, or the a couple many, of many dozens of people listening in on the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll expound on the tsunami releases for just a second. So, you know, if, if you've ever experienced a hurricane or a, a, or a tsunami or other high moisture events, you know, the wave of devastation that it can re- it can leave. And um, that's exactly what 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 those those releases have been. Those integrated releases where you've got millions of lines of code that are all changing all at once, or, or all in a short period of time. And it's impossible to roll those things back or untangle the integrations or any of those things. And really getting to that microservices architecture is is uh, is one of those things on the continuum that we're all working towards and hopefully that will eliminate the the wave of destruction and it'll be more like little little uh cracks in the in the dam and and not um uh these big devastating events other than that um you know it's devops is definitely a not a role or a job anymore it's We've gotten to a point, and I never thought we'd get here, but we, we are here today where DevOps is just something you do. It's just the way you work. It's not a, it's not something special anymore, and hopefully in a year or two years or three years, when we look back and we think about like cloud platforms and cloud patterns, uh, the same will, will be true there too. All right, everyone. So I, I hope you enjoyed that talk with John as much as I did. 
Um, <laughs> we wanted to keep it under an hour, and, and there's just so much meat there. I, I couldn't stop. Really enjoy talking with him. And if you have any questions about the podcast or any follow-ups, um, definitely get in touch with me. I'd be more than happy to talk with you about it and even pass along to John. And uh, thank you again for, for your time. That was great. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.